reading from the Word of God, Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and empowered them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Please pray with me. Oh, gracious Father, we give you thanks that you create opportunity for us to be cut to the heart by your word, that you bring men and women and children into our life to speak a word of truth, that cuts us and reminds us that though we are believers, that we're sinners. That though we're part of the church, that we sin and we have sin to confess and repent of. Lord, thank you for this model of repentance. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to confess to a brother or sister in Christ. To make things right. To be reminded that in you we have forgiveness. We have mercy. We're able to move forward on our journey with you. That your word would press forward prevail mightily. Lord, give us ears to hear your word is preached. Give understanding to our hearts as we hear your word. In your name we pray. Amen. It's good to be with you. We open our Bibles to Acts chapter 19 to study the word of God. And let me open by simply uh, talking about water, which is a bit of an unusual introduction I recognize, but I hope and trust that you'll be able to see how I tie this in. I grew up in New Braunfels, Texas. Uh, New Braunfels has, to my knowledge, the shortest river in the world, 
the Comal River. It also has the beautiful Guadalupe River. And I grew up swimming in both of them from a very young age. Uh, if you've ever been to New Braunfels in the Comal River, there's something called the Tube Chute. Uh, there's a dam across the Comal River, and some water runs around this, this dam, and it, you can tube through it. Uh, we didn't grow up necessarily tubing it. We grew up swimming it. And we would bring friends as we got older to do this. And one of the things we always had to express to them was the power of the water at the bottom of this chute. You jump into the chute and the chute would roar you around the side of the dam with all of this water and when it would dump you in back into the river. Uh, the power of that water, if you're not watching, was very dangerous. It could just hold you down. As you get older, maybe you go to the ocean and you stand uh, as the waves break in, maybe as a storm is drawing these waves in, and you stand in front of those waves and maybe you take your children and you wade out and you feel the power of that ocean water as it slams against you. 2002, 18 years ago, I had the opportunity to help assist those who had come underneath the power of water. The Guadalupe River, you may have remember, you may remember, overflowed its banks. Canyon Lake overflowed, and it created a new spillway, and it rerouted a river in just a few minutes, shoving tons and tons of debris and rock as it created a new path for itself. Water is power unlike almost anything else we see on this earth. Hymn writers have taken the liberty to use the power of that in comparing it to the love of God. The hymn, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. How vast, how unmeasured, how powerful, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me is the current of thy love, the hymn writer would say. And this morning, as we look in Acts chapter 19, we see a display of power unlike any other. We see a, uh, if you will, a power on power, a power against power, a battle of powers. And ultimately what we recognize and what we know and what we will see yet again is God's miraculous power displayed ultimately in Christ's work of salvation is declared to be eternally great. And in the life of the Christian, it's declared to be eternally great when we are walking in repentance from known sin. That's what displays in our world today to the watching world around us, to unbelievers and even to other believers. That the power of God displayed through Christ is seen and magnified and wondered at as we walk away from known sin. And we do so only because of that power. If you have your Bible open, I trust you're with me in Acts chapter 19. You'll see there in verse 11, uh, we have taken up our continued study. And we'll take this section all the way through verse 17. And if you're taking notes and you want something simple to direct you through this passage, I recommend you three words, recommend to you three words. They begin with P. We have power, we have phonies, and we have a pummeling. All in this first few verses. Notice, first of all, where we're at. We're continuing in Ephesus. Paul's ministry is there. 
And it is God who is working in Ephesus. By the end of our passage, we will see that not only has his work continued, but he is promoting the proclamation, the continued proclamation of his word, if you look over in verse 20, by the work that he is doing. And he's doing really a work that is, and your Bible, if you're reading the English Standard Version, says it well, extraordinary. Uh, it's, it's unlike anything else in our normal life. He's doing miracles. And this Greek word miracles, you see in verse 11, uh, is, is that which in our English is translated as dynamite. It is power. In the Bible, we have different words for miracles or signs or wonders. And this one is noting not necessarily what God is doing, but the power he is displaying in what he is doing. And here's what he is accomplishing. Here's what he is showing off. His power is being displayed in such a way that so that handkerchiefs and aprons touching Paul are being taken from Paul back to a home, back to a neighborhood, back to a house. They're being rubbed up against an individual or a group of people. And you can see in your text, diseases are leaving the sick. Evil spirits are coming out of people. Uh, the, the, the modern equivalent here is, is a Kleenex, something that would be used to wipe a face, an apron or a, a piece of clothing that was probably in their time a belt or a sash or something that was an outer garment that was wrapped around them. Uh, it, it is as if somebody walked by, brushed your coat, you took your coat off, you took it back to your home, you took it to your sick child, you rubbed that child with your coat and the child's healed. I think it's unique. And this small vignette in the work of Paul that is being declared in Acts 19, it's as if Paul has a, a bit role, if you will. Such a small part. He is the last name after 10 minutes of credits in fine print. It's as if he's not even a part of the situation. Knowing God, notice God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And then it's as if Paul has no clue what is happening. He's simply preaching the gospel. Maybe he's still in the hall of Tyrannus, which you can see in verse 9 that we looked at last week. Maybe this is still happening within the two years. Maybe it's happening afterward. But either way, it seems as if Paul is just proclaiming Christ and then getting word. Hey, somebody was healed today. Hey, somebody had an evil spirit drawn out of them today. It is God's affirmation of the power of Christ faithfully proclaimed by Paul by doing these works of healing. God is revealing his character. God is revealing his power. God is revealing his purpose to the watching world. And we've seen this in the book of Acts. Where he accompanies the power of the gospel by a miracle, by a sign or wonder to authenticate that what is being declared 
Hope for sinners in Jesus Christ is true. Now you've got this other group of people that are watching. And we've seen this in our study. Others who are seeing what is taking place. And who try to imitate what only God can do. These are phonies. There's no power in this handkerchief. There's no power in an apron. There's no power in Paul. The power belonged to God alone, and these phonies didn't see it. A couple of years ago now, my wife and I got the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and visit the city and tour Israel. And one of the most stark messages of hopelessness to us was standing outside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, this Catholic church that holds to the the view, the idea that here Christ was buried and watching people go in of all sorts of nationalities, ethnicities, going in loaded with clothing, backpacks, pictures, items, of worth to them, that they had saved up money for years and years and years to be able to afford this trip, walking into this church with such hope on their face. And we would walk into the church after them, and there they would would prostrate themselves over what they believed to be the tomb of Jesus Christ, and they would take their clothing, and they would take that picture, and they would take that item that they had brought all the way from wherever they had traveled to, and they would rub it over the top of this stone, hoping beyond hope that there was some power in this slab of rock that would then be able to infiltrate this clothing. They could transport it back to where they came from. They could place it upon their loved one and some power would be transferred over. Oh, what hopelessness. And then to watch these people going in with hope on their face and coming out. And you could just see it written all over their face. Was that it? 45, 50, 60 years of saving money to get here to do that and that's it? What hopelessness is in any other than Jesus Christ? The power belongs to God alone. And yet these phonies, notice these itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now that's probably not your typical vocation at your local job fair. The child doesn't typically go to daddy and say, I want to be either a fireman or an itinerant Jewish exorcist. Uh, the question would be, who are these folks? Well, there's, there's seven of them, as we can see in verse 14. This was apparently uh, a group of people, this itinerant could be drawn out in Greek to, to mean traveling or vagabond. Uh, They were, just to put it frankly, snake oil salesmen that had yet to be exposed and currently were still under the expert category. There was some thought that these who could ride in and imitate the work of God had some 
profound power in and amongst them, and they take up the charge, verse 13, to seek to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. They want to imitate what only God can do, and they go at it. I would call you to notice the contrast that Luke is drawing out for us between the weak and the perceived strong. That is, the, 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 the handkerchief, a Kleenex, something thin and light, powerless, gets blown by the wind comparatively to seven sons of a Jewish high priest. I think it's important for us to just pause here and, if you will, uh, take a theological primer of evil spirits from the study of Scripture, just to acquaint us with how should we think about what is taking place in verse 14 and 15, where you see these seven sons seek to imitate what only God can do, the evil spirit overpowering them, through the power of this man to such an extent that it's a one-on-seven showdown in this room and seven leave the room, flee the room, run from the room, having had their clothes stripped from them and wounded. How do we think about this for our daily lives? What should we be thinking as, it perceived, as we think about evil spirits? What's relevant for us? What does the Bible say? Well, let me encourage you, if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And let me note, as I take us to the Old Testament, a passage you would recognize, I trust. As I take us to the Old Testament, evil spirits, though mentioned in the Old Testament, are never seen as being cast out in the Old Testament. That's only in the New. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we have the first seen, if you will, within the history of mankind of an evil one. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And we recognize this is simply a title for the evil one. This is not just simply uh, the common everyday snake withering through the grass. This is Satan. Uh, this is the one who had rebelled from God. This is one of unparalleled power, if you will, on a human sphere. God being much more powerful, but compared to men of great power. To the point that this crafty evil one is able to take the only two people that had ever lived, that have ever lived, outside from the consequences of sin, not under the power of sin at this time, and deceive them. This is a lot of power. It is of seemingly, at this point in Scripture, unrivaled power, and yet we even get hope by the end of Genesis chapter 3, that God's power is much greater as he crushes and puts under a curse the serpent and tells us of one that's going to come who will crush the evil one. 
We could continue on. We could go to Exodus, which we won't at this time, to see other passages where we have uh, seem the, the evil one uh, up against God's people. So we have Moses and Pharaoh's magicians of Egypt in Exodus. We also have uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18, turn there with me if you will, another showdown of evil versus God in Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And I would note the powerlessness, yet again, of the evil spirit, yet powerful enough to get these prophets of Baal, 450 and 400 prophets of Ashereth, to do inhumane things to themselves out of belief that the evil one is of great power. If you're with me in 1 Kings chapter 18, note, and he answered, Elijah did, Ahab did, to Elijah, is it you, you troubler of Israel? That's Ahab asking that question of Elijah, and Elijah answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals, that is, followed idols, that is, followed the prince of the power of the air. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Ashereth who eat at Jezebel's table. And you are probably familiar with the passage or the story, but I'll tell it in brief. There's a showdown. Whose God is greater? Who has more power? Is it Baal or is it the God of Israel? And ultimately the question is, whoever has more power is the one that should be worshipped. It's one against 850. The odds are not good. Then Elijah, verse 22, said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood but put no fire on it and I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it and you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of my God and the God who answers by fire he is the Lord he is God and the people answered it is well spoken and we know what takes place the worshipers of Baal the worshipers of the evil one do all sorts of inhumane things. They dance, they cut themselves, they cry out. They lance themselves with swords. Verse 28. Nothing. Elijah mocks them. Maybe he's not paying attention. Maybe he hasn't been able to hear you. And they they double down on their efforts. And then Elijah does his work. And he stacks the odds even more so against him. He has his altar with the bull that has been given to him doused with water. To such an extent it is overflowing the altar into a trench. And then he calls upon God. 
Verse 36, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back and then fire falls from heaven. God does his work. We know Satan is the father of lies. And so we can think as we get to the New Testament of Peter who after confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, resists Christ's proclamation of his needing to die on the cross. And Christ tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. This idea of, Peter, what you're saying is coming straight from the devil. Demon possession in the Bible was something that was seen, especially in the book of Acts. We've seen this. We've seen this with, with Christ in the book of Mark when we studied that a number of years ago. And it had signs. Let me just give you some of the signs that demon possession in the Bible included. Speechlessness, Matthew 9, 33. Deafness, Mark 9, 25. Blindness, Matthew 12, 22. Fierceness, Matthew 8, 28. Unusual strength. Mark 5, 4. Convulsions. Mark 1, 26. Foaming at the mouth. Luke 9, 39 and others. And when we read the Gospels especially, Matthew, Mark and Luke primarily, the Gospel writers inspired by the Holy Spirit could distinguish between demon possession and other diseases. There was clarity between the two. And so the question for us is, what we see in Scripture is that Satan is very powerful. Are there still evil spirits today? Do they still inhabit people? Should we be concerned about our friends and family? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, there's still an evil spirit. Yes, there's still Satan. Yes, he's still roving about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Yes, his desire is to still, even as a defeated foe, thwart the work of the gospel. Should we be hiding behind every rock and tree, hoping we don't get pounced on? No, no more than Paul was. He simply proclaimed Christ. The cure for demon possession is faith in Jesus Christ, not some thing I can have or a handkerchief or this or that or naming the right thing to cast them out. No, Christ is much more powerful. And we should recognize that the Benny Hens of the world, the Kenneth Copelands of the world, Mike Bickles of the world, Todd Bentleys, Bill Johnsons, these men function in extremely dangerous territory. They're false preachers who peddle a false gospel, a false hope, not unlike these seven sons of Sceva. They're snake oil salesmen in our modern day. That's exactly what's taking place here in this passage. We should note that these are simply trying, whether it's our modern day or these seven sons of Sceva, are simply seeking to, if we get our words right, then we'll have power too. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Simply naming Jesus over something has no power. 
The claiming of this or that or otherwise in the name of Jesus has no sway because the power is God's, not our words. And many miss this today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure. What's the treasure? The gospel. In jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Brothers and sisters, we in Christ were once much like these sons of Sceva and attitude. And note this, even in bondage to the power of Satan. We needed Jesus Christ to come to earth as the only one who could overpower the evil one. Christ is the one who comes in Mark 3 to bind the strong man, the evil one, and rescue those bound in his grasp. And he has done that for us. Amen. Well, then the, the question might be for application. And I confess the first thing I did in opening this passage was figure out how to spell Ouija and then look up Ouija boards. What do we do with that stuff? What do we do with Dungeons and Dragons and Harry Potter and genies and dark video games and horror films? What do we do think about these things in our day in light of the power of evil spirits as proclaimed in our passage this morning? And I admit some of those things are easier to consider than others as to their proper place in our lives. And so let me first give a principle and then maybe a word or two of application. Principle would be this. We never want to make a game out of or teach anyone. Name it. Children, neighbors, co-workers. Never want to make a game out of or teach anyone to be trivial or lighthearted about what the Bible says is dangerous and evil. And so we should give long, hard thought to the access we have, to the access we give to our children, our grandchildren, our brothers and sisters. Give long and hard thought to the access they have, we have, to entertainment of any kind and whether it is promoting truth and light or evil and darkness. And if it's promoting evil and darkness, why are we wasting our time doing that? We have been brought into the light by the glory of Jesus Christ that is shown upon our hearts. Why would we spend time promoting darkness? And these are hard questions to think out in practicality, but really, they're probably not. To sit down, to look at the DVD case, to look at the gaming case, to look at the board game closet, whatever it might be, to think through how we're spending our time and say, does this promote that which is right and true and realistic or that which is false? Note what takes place, verse 17. The contrast of the power of God to the weakness of men, the display of God's power to heal, and the power of the enemy to destroy, it elicits a response from both Jews and Greeks, residents within Ephesus. Note the response, fear and the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ as great. That's what it states. Verse 17, the Lord Jesus was extolled. Simply means he was made to be known and proclaimed as greater than any other. What's the desire of God the Father? We've asked that this morning, to glorify the Son. What's the desire of the Son? To glorify the Father. And God uses his power to display the glory and worship of Jesus Christ, his Son. 
as greater than any other. Well, verse 18 is our next section. Uh, We had power. We had phonies. We had a pummeling, if you will. And then we have a practice, a new practice in verse 18 and following. And, And this is a bit of a plot twist. If you're looking at your Bible, if you've read or been with us in our study of Acts, you note that verse 18 is really quite the unique response. We would assume to read in verse 18 that many unbelievers came to faith in Jesus Christ because that's happened in the book of Acts. Maybe we would expect to hear about revival breaking out in the city or maybe like other times, Acts chapter 16 might come to mind, where after something like this, a miraculous working of God's power, there's resistance to the preaching and ministry ministry of Paul. Paul in Acts 16 gets jailed for similar things like this. But that's not what happens. Notice what takes place in verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. What practices? Well, apparently, some of the practices, not the entirety of the group, but some of the group, That's what it says. And a number of those, who's the those, those who had come confessing and divulging their practices, a number of those had been practicing magic arts and they brought their books. They brought their scrolls. They brought them into the sight of all. They brought them out from the hidden places, from underneath the mattresses, from in the box up in the top right-hand corner of the closet, they draw, drew them out, they brought them out to everybody, and the value was 50,000 pieces of silver. Many believe this to be, these, each one of these pieces to be a drachma. That's the Greek word for it, a coin that was basically the laborer's average daily wage. I won't work out for you the math. I don't know your daily wage, but you do the math. You can do that. Whatever you make a day, make it a simple number. Multiply it times 50,000. It's going to be a big one, whatever the number is. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Notice These who came confessing and divulging their practices, they confessed and they repented. Repeated confession and no repentance is not biblical fruit. But here is biblical fruit. Confession and walking away, turning away, running away, cutting ties with their sin. They walked their talk. And I think no matter what the number is that might be for you of a daily wage times 50,000, don't get caught up in the number. Simply see it as this. Repentance is costly and priceless of highest worth, much higher worth, if you will, than whatever they had spent on, whatever they had spent their time gathering and enjoying now had nothing to do, no comparison with the glory of walking 
in faithful obedience to Jesus Christ. Let's just think about this for a moment. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19? You might, I'm sure, be familiar with the story here in Luke chapter 19 of Jesus and Zacchaeus. And I simply want to highlight for us what is taking place by way of repentance. And his repentance is costly and priceless as well. And more than just a monetary way. It's, it's priceless. It is costly to his reputation. As is the reputation probably of those in Acts 19. He entered Jericho. That is, Christ comes into Jericho. He's passing through it. And there's a man. You probably know the story. Climbs up in a sycamore tree if you can sing the song. A man by the name of Zacchaeus. A wee little man. A tax collector. A rich man. Wanting to be able to see over the heads of those around him. Climbs up in a tree. And when Jesus comes by, Christ notes him, calls him down, tells him, I'm coming to your place. Zacchaeus is probably thinking, oh yeah, he is. My place. It's just, it's just an affirmation that even this religious teacher knows how important I am as a tax collector and rich man. So he hurried, came down, received him joyfully. When they saw it, the people grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood, said to the Lord. And the question is, what happens between verse 7 and 8? I want to know. I want to know what is talked about on the way from the sycamore tree to the house. I want to know what is said by Jesus. I want to know what God does. All we know is that God does something miraculous and supernatural in the heart and mind of this man who obviously recognizes himself for the first time as being what everybody else knows to be a sinner. And he says this, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he does. He saves us calls us out of our sin, calls us to walk in repentance. And yet we know, brothers and sisters, that walking in repentance can often be a bloody mess. Where do we see that? Well, turn in your Bible further to your left. We had Luke. Let's go Mark and Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. To your left in your Bible, chapter 5, verse 27. Christ speaking about a particular sin, adultery, lust. 27, you have heard what it was said. You should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with, in, with her in his heart. 
when he calls us in obedience to him to fight our sin. And notice how he describes it. Now, we're not suggesting, and neither is Christ, that this is literal. That we should walk around one-eyed. Everyone in here knows that if that were to be the case, we would all be blind because one eye is not enough and one hand is not enough. But notice the intentionality of our fight. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What is it that we're willing to hide that we don't want anybody to know about that if we cut off from our lives our viewing, our touching, our tasting, our pleasurable desire into, that if we had to cut it off would be painful, it would be exposing, and yet we have to ask the question, if I don't cut it off, what is it saying about my relationship with the Lord? Listen, if you will, uh, continue in your Bible with me to James. Listen to how James describes the blessings of repentance, of a willingness to be exposed, of a willingness to be drawn out into such a, a way that it's, it, it's very costly to you. Maybe in a monetary way. Maybe that if you, if you were drawn out in your dark practice of sin, whatever that dark practice is, don't get caught up in thinking, well, you know, I, I haven't been playing with my Ouija board for a number of years. No, no, no. That's not the point here. Application for us today is much more of, yeah, I've been looking at pornography and, and nobody knows about it. We know this. I've been flirting with the, the secretary or my boss. I've been cheating on my bank account and my, my, my taxes. Well, we, let the Holy Spirit draw that out. But the question would be then, if, if that's what has to be drawn into the light and cut off, if that has, has to be drawn out and, and, let's go to our actor passage, made known for everybody to see where they could count the cost and the job is lost and the pension is gone and whatever it is, if that's what has to be drawn out, is Christ worthy? Is he more glorious? That's a question that, 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 that's set before us. But notice how James describes the blessing of repentance. James chapter 5, 13 and 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Does sin cause us to suffer? Yes, it does. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Does sin cause us to be sick? Yes, it can. Are we saying that everything in, every time you get a sickness, you're an unrepentant sin? No, of course not. We're under the fall of sin. The curse of it. So if you have a headache, that doesn't mean you have unrepentant sin. But that does mean if you have unrepentant sin, your body probably is not in a healthy way. And God's gracious enough to help draw that out even at times. Notice what takes place 
Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We can't entirely understand what James is doing here other than to say that repentance from sin makes you feel good. Unlike the pleasures of sin. What power do we fight our sin? What power do we walk out this repentance? Not our own. It's only through the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the name. He is the the one of power and worth that is unmatched. I've said it before, but he he is the one who entered into our sinful state. Because only he had the ability and the power to break us free from the law of sin and death. We sang it this morning, but the hymn, There's Power in the Blood, asks a number of questions. Maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. Let me draw out for you some of the questions. Would you be free from the burden of your sin? Would you or evil a victory win? Would you be free from your passion and pride? Would you be wider, much wider than snow? Would you do service for Jesus, your King? Would you live daily his praises to sing? What is the answer? There's power in the blood of Jesus Christ. Charles Wesley drew it out in another way. Jesus Christ, he says, breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. God's miraculous power displayed ultimately in Christ's work of salvation is declared to be eternally great when we are walking in repentance from known sin because it's the only thing that can break us free from that sin. And he desires, God desires that the worth of his son be declared to all the world. Thus his power manifested in this way in Acts chapter 19, 11 through 20. Now we're almost done. But I want us to just sit on this work of Jesus Christ a bit longer. Would you turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. And I want us to note in just the few minutes that we have here of the weakness, and I say that in quotations, the perceived weakness of God compared to the perceived strength of men. And I'll simply read this. And leave it to the Holy Spirit to do its work. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17-25. For Christ did not send me to baptize, this is Paul, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. Think in your mind, set before your mind the sons of Sceva here. The snake oil salesmen that would be flowery in their language to promote a false gospel. But to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where is the one who thinks he knows it all? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, for the handkerchief, for the Kleenex touched by God is stronger, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Repentance is the fruit of beholding God's unequaled power in Christ. I would ask you this morning, do you know that power? Have you been saved from your sin? How do you behold God's unequaled power in Christ if you do not know him? And it's by first recognizing your sin has such a powerful hold on your soul, you need someone to rescue you and you're unable to do it in your own ability. You need Jesus Christ. Do you recognize your sin? And then, by God's grace, I trust that in the word before us, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or other places. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him to be who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. I trust that God will allow you to see the glory of Jesus Christ that came, that died for you and rose from the grave to give you a hope of eternal life and that if you will but set your trust upon him If you will but repent and believe, you too shall be saved. For the believer, let me just remind us of what we know but need to be reminded of. God's power in helping us fight our sin is activated only through humility. It's not activated through pride. You can't get the power to to repent and walk away from sin by thinking you got it. It's activated through humility. This is a hard quote, but I'll read it for you. It's a quote by John Calvin. He says this about this passage, about these who repented. Notice what he says. We know what a hard matter it is to wring true confession out of those who have offended, for seeing men count nothing more precious than their estimation. They make more account of shame than of truth. Yea, so much as in them lieth, they seek to cover their shame. Therefore, this voluntary confession was a testimony of repentance and of fear. What is it that you are turning to in hopes of getting relief, freedom, pleasure to mask the pain? Let me just proclaim, as is the word before us, as the word before us today proclaims, Christ is greater, his power has no match. Turn from your idolatry, turn from your sin, and worship Christ as Lord, and as the one who has the power to save, heal, and purchase our forgiveness. Christian, what is it that you are turning to in hopes of getting such relief, freedom, pleasure, masking pain? Christ is greater. Christ is greater. Well, we see what happens in the conclusion of our passage in verse 20. We began with the work of God and we see now the word of God authenticated by his work 
continuing to increase and prevail mightily. I'll leave it to your own personal study, but this uh, wordage, if you will, in verse 20 is seen in other passages in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 31, chapter 12, verse 24, 16, verse 5, and 28, verse 31. There's six of these type verses in the book of Acts, and others have done the good work of seeing them actually as structural markers. There's about five years between each one of these of where God is continuing to do His work and His Word is continuing to be proclaimed. His work continues to promote His Word. It does so even today. I've stated it before. I'll state it again. God's miraculous power displayed ultimately in Christ's work of salvation is declared to be eternally great when we are walking in repentance from known sin. Let's look to Christ. Let's look to Christ in the Word this week. Behold God the Father's work through the Son, and we can trust He will continue to do His mighty grace-filled work of making us more like Christ for His glory. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for this Word, and we pray and trust it'll do its work within our lives. Uh, Father, what a glory we see in front of us. The power of Jesus Christ. The power of you, our Father, that has no equal, that cannot be touched, that cannot be matched. That even in today, as we walk out our lives and the evil one tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, all it takes is an upward look And we see him there, the one who made an end to all our sin, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for sending Christ to rescue us from the power of the evil one. And now today, as we look look toward this week, our, our goal by your grace will be to simply proclaim Jesus Christ of highest worth. And we trust that word will do its eternal work of sending all other idols, all other powers fleeing as you promote and glorify your Son in individual hearts and minds. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have had this morning to to worship with one another, to sing, to pray. And as we go from this place, we trust that you will continue to give us grace for even this coming week. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.